Hello everyone, this is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining. Let's get started with Cassie and Melissa Heidrich. Melissa, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having so, me. Melissa, tell everybody how we know each other. Oh, how do we know each other? We've met, we've been on panels together. We've been at several conferences together. I think probably the first time we met was at Masters Conference I think Dallas. so. And I think that we are both really good friends with Jerry Bowie. So I think I'm going to make Jerry the matchmaker there. He made it happen, don't you think? Absolutely. He yeah, can have absolutely. credit. So enough about Jerry. Let's talk about you, Melissa. Tell me what you do at Norton Rose. Well, currently I'm serving as the manager of e-discovery and litigation technology, which is a very fun role. Tell me a little bit about what that means for people who may not know what e-discovery is listening to this podcast. Oh man, the fear of every e-discovery professional is mm -hmm. to be asked, what is e-discovery? And everyone kind of has their own elevator pitch. So here's mine. When you're in a dispute, there is a point in time in that dispute, if you're going to go to trial or fight with each other, that both sides have to give each other evidence. And as the future is coming at us pretty quickly, that evidence is changing. It used to be pieces of paper. Now it's emails and texts and DMs and chat messages. And all that data has to be aggregated, processed, preserved, collected, analyzed, prioritized hopefully using some kind of machine learning and artificial intelligence, and then hand it over to the other side. So there are a few things when you're thinking about that, a whole cottage industry has sprung up over the last 20 years to do this legal work. And it's really a big part of litigation costs. It's pretty high. So there are a few things you wanna do when you're undertaking this. And one is don't let your lawyers read junk. You should put the good stuff in front of your lawyers and not make them read the junk. And then just making sure that all the requirements are met, all the regulations, just really trying to get that data from point A, where it lives, to point Z, where it needs to live before you can share it with your opposition. Right. And there's an interesting tension that occurs with e-discovery and our obligations to produce documents and litigation and privacy concerns as well. It's a very complicated space that we live in, which is data, all your data. And that's really the focus of that podcast series that Jerry and I started. And that's really what prompted me to start a separate podcast with different guests, because I work in data, you work in data, and we deal with emerging technology. Now, what are a few of the emerging tools that you use or you're most excited about in your professional setting? That is such a difficult question because I have so many professional settings. But in the context of e-discovery, uh, it's really fun to see the rest of the world starting to understand the potential of just generative artificial intelligence, classification, machine learning. Uh, as an e-discovery professional yourself, we've kind of been shouting this stuff from the yeah. rooftops for a long time. And so it's really fun to see it spread out and the user interfaces get so much more friendly and easy to use. Of course, also incredibly risky, 
but I, I just love seeing how artificial intelligence is changing the way that people think about legal. Everybody's kind of looking around, like wanting to understand what's going to happen next. And it's so important, like to advise our clients and to serve as effective counselors that we know what's here now, what the risks are, what's coming and what we need to do about it. I feel there's a, a misunderstanding of AI in that AI is supposed to make our lives easy. And I think some people take that to mean I should easily be able to start using that tool right away. First iteration, first output is gonna look great. And sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes that's because I think the content creators oversimplify you know, this great output and they don't really disclose how many iterations it took to get to what they're sharing to the world. What do you think about that? Do you think there needs to be more education and understanding from the general public that you're just not gonna pick it up right away. You need to really work at it to learn the tool. You know, I do, Cassie. And I think there's two sides to that coin. The first side is, you're right. Don't expect your first output to be the output, right? Like in e-discovery, we have to iterate a lot before we get to a model output that we're happy with. Um, and when I'm thinking about any kind of machine learning, say image generation, you're going to craft a lot of prompts. You're going to edit them. You're going to tweak them. You're going to have to play with some prompt language uh, to get versions of the image that you want. It's going to take a long time. There are going to be really fun mistakes along the way. But if you think about it as fun mistakes as a learning process, it's not something I would undertake as this is the easy button and your task will be done in five minutes. It's something I would undertake as, hey, let let this tool do the first part for you. And then your brain can really do the valuable stuff. Just like we don't want those lawyers to read junk, editing is going to be much quicker for you than starting from scratch. But now I did say there were two sides to this coin. The other side of the coin that I see where I think we need a little bit more uh, evangelizing and helping people understand the outputs from the artificial intelligence tools that you're using is you may get an output, whether it's from a large language model or an image genera generator that you think looks good. But unless you actually have the subject matter expertise in that area, you don't know if that output is ready to go out into the world and be shared like with, with people. And this could be a low risk thing, right? Like maybe you're using ChatGPT to prepare a presentation and it's pretty low risk. Like, you know what you're trying to say. But if you want ChatGPT to prepare work product in an area that's outside of your area of expertise and you don't have the confidence to read that output and go, it's it's legitimate, it's true, or this could be gibberish, big risk, red lights, you need to learn more. I would say it's difficult to trust machine learning outputs. I think the fact that you say trust is very interesting because when I was at Consensus and I was sitting in on some topics about metaverse, they were talking about, they were framing issues around AI as a trust issue. And for me, and I think probably for you as well, we hear trust and we hear, well, we deal with that in our professions because we're using AI in an adversarial setting. So the first approach is the other side is agreeing to let you use it maybe, but from a trustless position and you nearly have to be able to prove up that how you're using it is defensible. So I think that we have a different vantage point to using these tools that other people don't. And that gives us an advantage. And I think that gives a lot of people a disadvantage. The Mata v. Avianca case where an attorney thought, and there were people saying, well, is 
search is dead, ChatGPT is taking over search. And it's not the same thing. And this attorney thought it was, and he didn't realize the limitations, the garbage in, garbage out that comes with it. So there's just a lot of education to a lot of people, regardless of how far they are in their profession. There are assumptions that we can't make about these tools, I think. I think you're right, uh, especially when it comes to shepherdizing. For those of us who are attorneys, there is a whole step where you check your case citations, you edit them, you kind of look at the, the matter and all the documentation. And really, it's a big important part of motion practice is shepherdizing and making sure that you're providing accurate information to the court. Uh, and there are a lot of ways to do that. So trying to use a machine learning tool to help you get started is not a terrible idea. But that last step is very, very important. And honestly, I think it's a pretty important step with, with all artificial intelligence. I like to refer to it as the last mile problem. So we've known about the last mile problem in shipping for years and years. The preface is the most expensive part of shipping anything is that last mile. It's where all the mistakes happen. It's the most expensive part. It's the logistics are tough. I think of it the exact same way with artificial intelligence. Your goal at the end of the day is to have some work product that you can put out into the world. And the last mile of your work product is so important and it needs to have, it needs to be authentic and it needs to have your brain and your work product in there. Is it fine to be an editor? Absolutely. If you know about the topic that you're editing. We were talking earlier before I started recording, I'm using AI to help me edit the podcast, but I'm not letting the AI completely make all the decisions because I want that hand finesse. There may be times where I, I don't want it because I, I want the awkward fill words because to me, I think sometimes that that does add a little bit to the conversation or the feel or the vibe. So we want AI to make life easier as humans. We don't want it to make us robotic, you know? What do you think of the integration of ChatGPT and Microsoft via Copilot and the impact it will have to litigation? The impact will be enormous. I don't think we can measure it. Uh, and not just on litigation, on the law in general and on humanity, like how we move around and with each other in this world is going to be effective. So I'm in that camp. It's going to be a big, big game changer. Now, when you're, when it comes to Microsoft and open AI, my head just exploded and my little heart just burst with happiness because there is so much potential. Uh, one of the risks of using a public facing large language model is that you're not modeling on your own data set. Like you're not, you're using someone else's data to get to your answers. And that can be really challenging. So when I think about integrating Copilot into my everyday enterprise work at a law firm, I get very excited. I think there's a lot of client savings to be had. I think there's a lot of efficiency to be mined. I think this is going to open up doors and we're going to be able to do exciting things that we've never, ever been able to do before. And I also think that we can't take off our risk spotting hats and we have to, there will be risks like everything. There will be risks. There will be dangers. This is, this is law. Everything will be fraught with peril <laughs> because that's the law. I think it's important to embrace the possibilities and spot the risks and have a plan to mitigate them. So I think enterprise, AI solves a few things because you get to model with your own data. You get to have one source of truth and that's your enterprise data. 
But I do think there is a risk that we need to mitigate when it comes to understanding the training set inside of our enterprise co-pilot. You can't, in my opinion, if you're going to flip on co-pilot or, or accept this API and use this tool, you need to understand how your large language model was trained and whose data it is using to give you those beautiful answers. I think that's right. And I think not just at the beginning when you onboard it, but also over time as you're using it, are you updating it? Are you making sure the training set is getting updated to reflect maybe the more current laws? Or are you making niche bespoke models at a client level, at a substantive topic level? I think that we are not good at data hygiene. We see that all the time in data if there's a data privacy breach, often you, you hear of breach data, including data that could have been defensively deleted, but it's like, we're always looking ahead. We're never looking back to see what needs to be refined, updated. It's always moving on to the next shiny object. And right now the startup and integration of AI and enterprise systems, I think a lot of people are thinking about, but what are you doing as far as keeping that maintained, keeping it as current as possible? And then of course, as we look broadly, not only to the legal profession, but just the use of AI as more, more governing bodies or considering regulatory laws, what sort of compliance will their requirements will there be in the use of AI? So it's an interesting world that's about to open in front of us, Melissa. <laughs> I completely agree. You know, I'm curious what you think. It, it occurs to me that there might be some potential to use AI for good to help us solve those problems. Do you think that we could use some kind of integrated co-pilot system to help with privacy by design, or maybe even to spot like those pockets of privilege within your information governance I, system that you don't know? I mean, it seems like you could it, it maybe do an analysis of all your data, assuming that you have things organized. And there are some companies that try to quarantine very PII or PHI risks, uh, rich, excuse me, data and really limit the access and make, maybe that's something you do. You kick off some sort of tool and analysis. And I'm sure that there are some tools that are doing that. We think of AI in a context of creating works of art, whether it's written art, whether it's visual art, but we don't really always think about it as keeping a tidy operational house. And I see this in e-discovery systems, so software that we use, we're leveraging data that gets very complex and there are a lot of updates that are made to it because sometimes data gets loaded in on a rolling basis. And so anytime that happens, there are a lot of updates that need to start happening. So it is a very like iterative process. You don't just like plug in and go and that's it. You, you really have to maintain and manage those databases. And we're very good in e-discovery using AI on client data, but we're not really good. And nobody's really, from my observation, in a very meaningful, effective way said, how can we use AI to make operationally things better? When I send an email, and I've said this a million times, so sorry if you've heard me say this, but when I send an email and I mention the word attachment and I don't have an attachment on that email and I send the email, Microsoft Outlook won't let me send it. They stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. I think you meant to send an attachment here. But we're not seeing that in, I think, all software systems to point out maybe, you know, you're changing 
the format of this data. It is not formatted the same. Maybe that would take too much time to train it to recognize those patterns. But anyway, and I feel like there's a lot of tedious things that we do in our day-to-day life that that to me is really where AI can step in and be very meaningful and helpful. Now, whether it's helping with editing or whether it's maybe flagging things that require your attention because we're all so busy that sometimes those little things of you haven't done an audit of, of your PII audit yet, or you haven't checked to make sure nothing's been defensively deleted in six months or whatever. So I see a lot of use in, in using AI in those areas. I think so too. And you know, one thing that I think we don't think about when it comes to AI is it's very good at classifying things. So when you have a big volume of things and you need those classified, there are so many ways that we could leverage machine learning to help us do that. So you and I are used to doing this in the context of e-discovery, but I'm thinking about information governance. If I have Copilot in my enterprise, it might be a really good exercise to say, these are the names of the lawyers in my enterprise. Show me all of the uh, work product documents that are not encrypted or that maybe are in the wrong folder or just systematically being stored by my employees somewhere that is less risky or so that we can try to mitigate, encrypt at rest, encrypt in transit, keep that private data private, especially when you're trying to think about cross-border data or, or GDPR, data controllers have some responsibilities that they may or may not be living up to. I think it's worth pausing and level setting and reminding to everyone that when you use email, when you use your personal device or a work device and it's work related, it may get collected and used in evidence. And data is the new DNA when it comes to spicy courtroom hot takes. It is the text messages or the telegram messages, which can be screenshot that are filtering and being news headlines. So I feel as an e-discovery professional, if there's an opportunity talking to a wider audience, don't put it in whatever if you don't want your grandmother to read it, or if you don't want it read in court, right? Oh, that's exactly right. I can tell you stories from the trenches. I won't, but those communications that you're having, basically anything you put out into the world, as you live your life, you create a digital trail with your phone, with your laptop, where you go, who you talk to, what you say to them, whether it's text, chat, email, anything that, any way that you can communicate with people. If it is about the relevant topic, it is discoverable. And there could be a time when lawyers are going to be reading that and arguing over what you said. I mean, we're really living in the age that's hard to get away with with a crime because so much is captured in the internet of things, which was a very trending phrase, IOT, like five years ago, at least I think in our profession. Don't hear it that much, but it's definitely there. It's definitely present in the world. But... I do want to transition to something that I know that's near and dear to your heart, which is the recent Apple announcement. Tell me about your obsession with the metaverse and all of the fun headsets that are out there. Oh, yay. I love talking about mixed reality, virtual reality, augmented reality. There is just so much potential with this new technology. 
And there's also so much risk. There's so much risk that we don't even know what the risks are. And we can talk about that too. But when it comes to the Apple headset, I'm very, very excited for a few reasons. One of those is that we need healthy competition. So far, Oculus, you know, who was integrated into Meta, Facebook, Facebook and Meta have really been leading the charge. There are great headsets. Uh, the Pico 4 is wonderful. Lenovo's got a good headset. But Apple stepping into the game is different. The price point is very high. Uh, they're going to charge in early 2024. Apple's new headset will be available and they're going to charge $3,500 for it. This is a pretty big barrier to entry for a lot of people. And there is a lot of buzz in the our community that this is because Apple is not trying to attract consumers yet. They're trying to attract developers. And I will say that is a very smart move, in my opinion, on Apple's part, because we got to watch Meta do something similar with the Oculus Quest, and then the Quest 2, and then the Quest Pro. And moving through all three of those headsets and looking at the differences between the Quest 2 and the Quest Pro, the Quest Pro is very rich. You can record, you can simulcast. It's got very great graphics. They're just very poppy. They look amazing. And you can do a lot. There's great hand tracking. But the difference between the Quest 2 and then the, the, uh, the Quest Pro, which is so much more expensive, is just night and day. So to see Apple come out with a headset that might be competition for the Quest Pro is really exciting. We need competition to keep prices low and we, we need more than one player in this marketplace. And Apple just has a great track record of making devices that people love. You, we no longer think as our phones are just for calling or we, we play games on our phones, but they're not just for games. You, you live through your phone. It's a little computer that's with you all the time. And branding this Vision Pro as a spatial computing device is incredibly clever and I can't wait to see what it can do. I feel like it definitely gave the metaverse a glow up without referring to it as the metaverse. Um, I know that metaverse has a dark cloud over it a little bit. I I think it was it got overhyped too hyped too early. And I think that we don't know what the metaverse is going to be, but I think we're going to move in that direction. I think AR, I, I think there will be a day where we will not use our phones for directions. We're going to have something that's an arrow pointing us in our, like via augmented reality, that's going to be like a breadcrumb trail showing us how to get from point A to point. You know, those are the types of things I think will go. And I was listening to a live event on LinkedIn and it was metaverse people and they were talking about holograms and I think holograms are where it's really going to be. I mean, Obi-Wan Kenobi, help me. You're my only hope, you know, that kind of a vibe and just think of it, the impact of that as far as demonstratives in court, think of the impact of a hologram based demonstrative to show how someone murdered the victim or something like that. That's where I see, or, or even maybe using a VR situation where people can see this is really what happened because what you're doing is you're putting the juror even closer in the shoes of the victim. So I could see things like that happening. Um, what are some like big grand ideas that you have with AR, VR and XR? Oh, I have so many grand ideas about, uh, 
virtual reality. One of the big things that I find the most useful about virtual reality is it changes the way that I work. It changes the way that I meet with people and it changes the way that I co-work. There are so many excellent co-working applications where you can put on your glasses and if you've got your laptop, you don't need all these big screens. You can throw up as many giant screens in VR as you want and do everything that you can do on your laptop. So I think that's huge. You're also seeing when it comes to cross-border stuff, I've seen a lot of folks saying, you know, we can collaborate. We can collaborate. You've, we've had plenty of COVID-19 helped us to have Zoom meetings for court. We can have VR meetings for court and really interact with people real time. The headsets and the hardware are getting so much better. There are so many inward facing cameras now that the chances are you're looking at someone's real expression in virtual reality. You may be looking at their avatar space, but you can feel kind of the human interaction of sharing the same space, which is really incredible. And I do think that the use cases are highly varied. I will say for my personal use, I work out in VR, I meditate in VR. I know it's so- You know, I've thought about that. I've not, I've had limited use of, of VR I am a huge klutz, so I will fall walking upstairs, not just down them. But I thought, I love Jane Austen. I love J.R.R. Tolkien. How amazing would it be, instead of walking on a treadmill, I'm walking over to Pemberley, walking the grounds of Pemberley, or I'm marching to Mordor. I, I just feel like the thought of you're going to, we're going to be in the movies. We're not going to be watching the movies. We're going to be like one of the fellowship of the ring. I just see a lot of that kind of stuff. Like that potential is kind of exciting, but what kind of exercises do you do? There are so many great options. You can box an artificial intelligence who learns how you box and tries to, you know, beat you, which is so much fun. Wow. <laughs> you, yeah, you can, you can play with lightsabers and try to, hit targets to music. Uh, you can definitely, there's one really fantastic workout uh, application that's called The Climb that simulates rock climbing. It's so fun. What? Do you, cause you have yeah. a rock climbing wall in your space. So do you combine them both at the same time? Like, oh, you know how we talked about mitigating <laughs> risks, climbing a rock wall with your <laughs> VR headset on, big risk. You know, I hope you don't mind that we kind of venture into uh, one of your other jobs that you have, which you and your husband have a ranch. And to me, owning a ranch, you have you have animals that you take care of. That is very much as like if I think of a career path that, that a person could have or a job that seems very as removed from tech as possible, it would be that one. But I imagine there are ways that you can use whether AI, generative AI, VR, XR in, in that type of a business. So how are you using it or how could you see these technologies being used in that business? Oh, it's such a great question. Uh, one of the things that people don't understand about agriculture is that it's a business just like any other business. So when you think about the kind of documentation that you need for business, I need that for my farm, right? You need to form an entity. Uh, you've got to, you know, create a budget. You've got to create feeding schedules, like trying to mitigate risks that are to do with the weather, 
with animal health and safety, with building infrastructure. You know, one great thing that, that I love using artificial intelligence for is every time uh, we wanna expand or build new infrastructure, build a new pen, there are so many opportunities to leverage brainstorming. What are all the possibilities? Maybe draft me an animal welfare plan. And then as an expert, I can read it and tell, no, this is bad or this is good. And I can iterate that and, and come out with some really great work product. So there's also a lot to be done with automation on the farm. For instance, uh, the chickens that I raise are completely free range chickens. We don't lock them up. Uh, and there is some natural uh, loss there, right? Because there are predators and outside is a dangerous place, but I can mitigate that with automation. If I let them sleep in a coop and the doors automatically open when the sun comes up and then they automatically close when the sun goes down and everyone's inside and safe, I've reduced labor, I've increased efficiency and I've not had to expend any of that. I've done it all automatically, which is lovely. You can spend that time hanging out with your animals, feeding them. And I want to come hang out with your stuff. animals again. It's so much fun. Um, have you, do you know of people yes. using digital twins? I mean, I've talked about digital twins before and it seems to occur more with architecture and, and things like that infrastructure. So I can see that being a useful tool for an agricultural type of a business as well. Oh, I agree. I think there are so many possibilities. Um, especially if you can use your digital twin to model risk scenarios, model weather scenarios, you can spot risks so quickly and easily and mitigate them before they, or if maybe they never happen, but if they do, you've right. mitigated. We love mitigating risk as attorneys, don't we? <laughs> well, it's like it, my favorite I word. I mean, we know how to spot the red flags. So it's an important skill to have. Um, here as we wind things down, uh, is there a book you've read or podcast you've you've listened to or documentary you've watched? And it doesn't have to be specifically about this this you know emerging tech. Just something that kind of broadened your brain a little bit that you would recommend to the listeners. What would it be, Melissa? This is such a hard question, and I have an answer for it. Uh, everyone that I know or don't know, everyone on the planet should read "Name of the Wind" by Patrick Rothfuss. It is fiction, it's very fun fiction, but it is really about language and the richness of language and what words mean and what names mean and how the way that we name things and the way that we express ourselves around concepts really has the potential to shape our world. You may not know this, but everything that you put out into the world shapes it and changes someone's perception in some way. And it may seem unrelated, but to me, that is a huge part of generative artificial intelligence. It is modeling on the input that you give it. So reading really rich, descriptive language about words and the concepts of words is going to make you better at modeling. Because large language models, when it comes down to it, it's just about words and their proximity to each other. At the baseline, what these algorithms are doing is predicting the next best word. So the more beautiful words that you read, the more beautiful words you can use in your prompt engineering. And you can really understand how rich text allows for very beautiful, surprising and novel creations. I, what a great new source of data to add to our own human brain model that we all should be doing. So at the end of the day, AI is a mirror of, of us as humans. So uh, 
we should be enriching our own brains the way we want to enrich our our AI models. So that's a great recommendation. You said Name of the Wind, correct? Name of the Wind, Patrick Ross. Uh, love it. I will definitely put that in the podcast notes. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad you were able to be a guest here on Cassie and as we talked about the ways that emerging technologies are affecting your personal life and your professional life. Uh, we appreciate the time and we hope everyone out there enjoyed today's episode of Cassie and.